Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. As the nation marinates in record heat and many take their summer vacations, the cyber community converged in Las Vegas for two of its major annual conferences back-to-back, Black Hat and DEF CON. Later in the program, some takeaways from this year's conferences with Josh Steinman, who served at the White House and in the U.S. Navy in top cyber jobs uh, during the last administration. But first, joining us to discuss uh, how the nation should be improving its work cyber workforce is Andrea Shaman of Fortress. Andrea, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. It's, it's definitely always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation to come back. But before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. You um, gave the uh, Cybersecurity Woman of the Year uh, Award, which was sponsored uh, by Fortress. And this sort of introduces us to a topic, right? I mean, uh, some companies uh, do better than others. Um, Fortress does have a number of uh, women in senior positions. But that's a big challenge across the cyber uh, security and in, in, uh, industry, as well as the IT industry. Jenny Surley, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency uh, Director, uh, discussed uh, the importance of in- increasing uh, the, the female cyber workforce. T- talk to us about you know, why it's first the award, uh, but why it's important to grow this workforce aside from you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, this is just BS and it's uh, unnecessary social consciousness as opposed to actually there being some very concrete benefits um, to to having more women in this career field. It was an honor, like you said, I got to attend um, and present the Cybersecurity Woman of the Year Leadership Award, which is really the highlight of the night um, at the Cybersecurity Woman of the Year Gala. And then I was also invited to give a keynote address. And events like that are really important because they highlight the outstanding achievements in women in our field which, um, you know, we are the minority. There are very few women who are involved in in the cyber field. But I'm also very lucky to work for a company like Fortress, where we have a lot of female leadership. We have a lot of female representation. And then we have a lot of advocacy coming from the top. So it can't just come from the women in our field, because statistically, we're such a small group that if we don't have uh, men and uh, who are established in this industry really promoting and advocating for diversity, we're not going to see the change that's really necessary to make that uh, that shift. Do we know what the percentage is? I mean, some people say it's about uh, 25% of cyber jobs are held by uh, women, or but we're, whereas others will say actually the number is a little bit smaller uh, than that. Jenny certainly uh, within the decade wants to get to about 50, 50, 50. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are the statistics now? And more importantly, why is it important that women be represented, right? Because for some, this will be like, oh, this is just some BS diversity, you know, goal that's that's meaningless, whereas actually is meaningful, right? Chris Inglis, before he became national cyber director, joined us and talked about why diversity is actually important uh, as, as somebody who's uh, spent uh, decades in 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 a variety of these roles in and out of uniform. From from your perspective, what's the percentage like and why is it important that women be more represented? Three years ago, women represented 14% of the cybersecurity field. So that's compared to 48% of the rest of the workforce. So obviously well below, you know, half of the workforce is, uh, is female. And even further, only 1% of female internet security workers are in senior management positions. So that is a staggeringly low number. 
So events like this obviously promote diversity, but they also give visibility to folks who are looking to, um, maybe they're looking to enter the cybersecurity field. And so that gives them the opportunity to see that there are women who are working in this field and women who are thriving and who have um, really unique approaches to things, really creative solutions to problems that the industry has been grappling with for a while. And anytime you introduce diversity of thought um, or diverse gender or diverse talent or diverse background, you're gonna come up with unique perspectives and different vantage points. So the challenges may be the same and they're extremely complex and having those additional vantage points and those additional voices at the table is only going to help as they work towards solutions. And the field itself is constantly changing. So it would make sense that the workforce and the people who are addressing these problems, that that dynamic or that landscape should be changing as well. And, and so how do you recruit more women uh, into these jobs, right? I mean, folks are drawn to professions that they're attracted to. Sometimes uh, when they were uh, kids, I got attracted to cyber and to computers in the 1970s, you know, with mainframes. And I thought that they were cool and they spit out cards, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot of other, there weren't a lot of women going to Hunter College on Friday and Saturday nights, you know, in, in order to be able to use those computers. What are some ways to attract uh, a, a new generation uh, of of talent to these jobs. I mean, you got attracted to it somehow, right? That's right. Yeah, it was for and the I, money and the glamour. Let's that's be honest. exactly right. It's really just the glamour. Um, you know, I think that you nailed it when you said it was about something that really inspired you and excited you as a kid. You know, and traditionally, I mean, when I was a student and I was much younger, girls in STEM and girls in computing, it was it was a very novel idea. It was something that they were kind of kicking around, and they thought it was cute, you know, for girls to be involved in science. But there wasn't really that push, you know, if you gave up because you hit sort of a roadblock or a challenge, it was okay because girls weren't really meant to be good at those things. And it was a very special, you know, population of, of girls that would succeed in the STEM fields. And as time progressed, you know, as teachers uh, retired and younger teachers entered the workforce and those sorts of things and the dynamics of the STEM environment and education changed, you saw more girls who were getting access to those ideas. They were seeing aspirational leadership through events like the one we just discussed and, and through visibility of women in higher positions of leadership. So they started to realize, not only can I enter this field, but I can enter it and be successful. And there's a path for me and someone else has done it. And so, um, you know, again, going back to Fortress and advocacy, we sponsored uh, two cyber camps um, in partnership with the Central Florida Navy League and the Florida Cyber Alliance. And that was uh, the students that were attending those were middle school and high school students. It was made up of very diverse um, backgrounds, races, uh, genders, and talking to them about the excitement and opportunity and careers that are emerging in the cyber field, you know, talking to them about opportunities that don't even exist yet, but will when they're ready to enter the workforce. Um, the Navy's principal advisor, principal cyber advisor, Chris Cleary, he spoke to the students about all of the changes um, that he's already seeing within his career and how he also didn't start with a career in cyber, but it attracted him and, and he got really interested in how he's seen the field evolve. And so he really spoke to all of those kids and said, you know, continue this, continue pursuing this because we need you. We need your energy. We need your, your thought leadership and your creativity. So I think that things like that are really impactful, you know, and those are the experiences that are very closely aligned with yours, where you talk about the programming and the cards and those sorts of things, getting in and doing the work and having it mean something to you as a student to start with them when they're in school. Indeed. Hey, look, I eventually, you know, wanted to be a reporter covering military. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure and would love to uh, have you come back uh, again soon uh, to talk about workforce, but uh, a number of other issues that you and I actually spent a lot of time talking about. Thanks so much. 
That would be great. I would love that. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And joining us now to give his sense on the major messages from both of these important cyber uh, gatherings is Josh Steinman, who served as the senior director and the deputy assistant to the president for cyber on the National Security Council during the Trump administration, where he coordinated all cyber telecommunications, cryptocurrency, and supply chain policy for the U.S. government. He is also the founder of At Galvanic Co., an industrial control systems cybersecurity company. Josh Thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure having you on the program. Vago, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks very much again uh, for for joining us. And from your standpoint, what were the top takeaways uh, from this year's Black Hat and DEF CON? Well, I think the thing that we learn every year, and it's sort of one of those recurring lessons, it's uh, um, Groundhog Day, is that digital systems, any digital system that we have today is designed by human beings. And that means that it's, it's fallible and it doesn't matter who designs it, where it gets utilized. Every year, very talented security researchers come up with novel ways to break uh, many of the things that that make our world run. So in terms of this year, we've got got two really interesting headline talks, uh, a Starlink hack and a Zoom hack. And those two talks illustrated how with you know, some, some very simple and, and elegant uh, efforts, uh, computer security researchers were able to break into those two uh, widely used technologies. And every year, you know, we've seen this going back really to the beginning of, of DEF CON and then, and then Black Hat, whether it was the uh, hack of the Jeep, very classic talk or any number of the other classic DEF CON talks, it's like every year you just keep remembering that these systems are fallible, they're designed by human beings. You sat uh, in the White House in an administration that was focused uh, on uh, cyber improving the nation's cyber defenses. Uh, the preceding uh, two administrations also did that, right? Starting in the Bush administration uh, and then the Obama administration carrying it forward and, and this administration. I mean, what are the keys uh, to remember and what do we need to do, right? I mean, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, uh, retired Admiral Mike Rogers joins us uh, regularly. He was obviously former director of the National Security Agency, as well as the Cyber Command Commander, um, and makes the case that, look, we need much closer public-private partnership, ultimately, if, if we're going to address it. What are some of the things that have to happen for us to improve the security, Josh, of the infrastructure that we take advantage on a daily basis, right? I mean, we record this program with Zoom, so we're as interested in anybody in, in security, although everything you know we have is generally publicly disclosable information we're dealing with. That's not the case for all. What's, what's the right sort of strategic approach and ways to try to address this uh, from a more systemic basis, especially as the competition between the United States uh, and Russia and China um, accelerate? Well, having been the senior cyber policy official in the Trump administration for four years, um, architect of the national cyber strategy, the national strategy to secure 5G and and any number of other documents, and then overseeing their implementation, uh, the number one thing that I pressed over four years is that in cyber, people really are the capability. Right. Uh, I can give you any number of examples where 
Um, it was a human being that had given us a capacity to do something in the United States government or had discovered something novel that was being used to secure you know, critical systems. Uh, cyber is a, a challenge for the military, for the government, for that particular reason, because you know, our modern US government, inclusive of the US military, is really a creation of the industrial West. Uh, that's not a knock against it. It's just a reality. We've created systems that treat people as interoperable cogs in a machine. And unfortunately, when it comes to building software, securing software and breaking software, that's just not something that the United States government has really wrapped its mind around yet. And so, you know, as we undertook various efforts in the Trump administration, our number one priority was always around people. How do you grow people? How do you make sure that they get into the right positions? How do you make sure that when it comes to filling senior roles in the United States government, that we are actually putting subject matter experts into those roles? And so those were the areas that we focused on. I think we've had a fantastic track record there. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the question of our adversaries. Yeah. Um, an important question is that uh, folks have been shields up um, in government and across industry for months, uh, starting before uh, Russia's expected invasion of Ukraine and then after. Um, the U.S. government has been defending forward and, and has obviously been taking a lot of very highly classified actions along with our allies and partners. Mm -hmm. Right, So Humpty Dumpty is being pushed off the wall. Um, mm -hmm. But for many, it's a threat that didn't materialize. For others, it's a threat that's actually been kept at bay uh, and that now is not a time for complacency, right, because of a lot of hard work. What's, what's your sense on this? Is this, is this a case, uh, you know, sort of a testament to a bad adversary uh, or great defenses or both? What's, what's your sense on, on where we are right now? It's a great question. Uh, my team and I rewrote the entire policy surrounding how the United States government conducts cyber operations. That's widely known as NSPM 13. I, I think that that policy really refined and enabled the US government to go out and start being proactive. When it comes to cyber operations, we're incredibly proud of that policy. Uh, I, I took as a model the, the Prussian concept of Auftrags tactic, mission type orders, and really putting one person in charge of anything that you want to do it at whatever level and not ruling by committee and not running operations by committee. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to speak as to what's happening now, but certainly uh, if you look at the press, it does seem like those policy changes have finally enabled the United States government to start being proactive in cyberspace. And I think that's very important. And, you know, that is probably, that is probably had an effect on, on the landscape today. Uh, and, what, uh, what did or did not happen with regards to, you know, recent unpleasantness in Europe. Uh, and so I understand why the certain, you know, PR type actions have been taken by the administration. I, I do think that there's probably a bit of exhaustion setting in. Um, and to me, the way that I always try and message is about systems and not goals. And so for me, when talking to the public, when talking inside government, when I was inside, you know, what I would be thinking about is how to create systems that will enable us to handle 
this elevated threat level, as opposed to, hey, you need to be concerned about this specific threat. <clears throat> and so, you know, if I had one piece of advice for people, it would be to shift that language away from like a specific situation, which again, I think, as you've articulated, just leads to certain kind of exhaustion and start thinking about systems. It was one of the big things that I tried to do when I was on the National Security Council to get the U.S. government to be thinking about systems, not goals. Obviously, it's a very potent weapon and there needs or, or it can have a very uh, uh, a potent suite of weapons uh, that m- may require higher level administrative uh, administration uh, clearance, right? If it's a specific uh, cyber operation, let's say Stuxnet, because that's in the, in the public uh, sphere, right, would, would require some higher level uh, authorization. There are those who still sort of debate on what the lines should be between offensive and defensive. And for others, actually, it's part of a continuum, which is, I think, where you're coming from on this. There continue to be sort of discussions about this. What's, what's the balance and the way to think about it? Because it is one conjoined fluid battle space. And indeed, it is a battle space. I mean, we have been at war by the acknowledgement of, of senior military people for 15 years between the, the or and among the United States and Russia and the United States and China and its allies and partners, right? What's that balance point from your standpoint and the differentiation, or is it kind of a Talmudic one at this point, right? What's, what's offensive, what's defensive? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting, and, and going back to my experience as, a, as an undergraduate taking very high-end philosophy courses at the University of Chicago, um, it's a philosophical question, and I think it's one that um, actually falls into an area very interestingly exploitable um, by nations that use different linguistic structures as us. What do I mean by that? I mean that uh, American English, which we're both speaking right now, uh, has this concept of the differentiation in between friend and enemy, right? And you've illustrated that in your question, you framed it to me as war, right? We're at war, the opposite of which is at peace. Um, Russian and Chinese and some other languages, some other cultures, um, they use different types of formulations when talking about this. Uh, Fenduo, I'm probably butchering that for our Mandarin speakers, Borba in Russian, again, same for our Russian speakers. These are terms that are used in, uh, in these languages, I think uh, maybe there are different synonyms, but what they mean is something more akin to struggle uh, right. in, Kampf, um, in, Kampf in, in German. Sure. Yes. In, um, you know, in, uh, in Arabic, uh, jihad, which uh, if you study a little bit, you'll find actually just does mean struggle. It can be an ex- internal struggle, like the struggle to become more, um, uh, more observant of the will of uh, Allah, or it can also mean a conflict, uh, external conflict, one that happens very close to home, one that happens very far from home. And so the reason why I bring this up is because, again, it goes back to this question of systems over goals. Like the minute we start saying, oh, we've been at war in cyberspace, well, um, I'm not sure that's the case. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if you have an adversary that per the annual unclassified 
intelligence threat assessments that get submitted to Congress by the DNI, the various other officials in the intelligence community. Um, you know, they'll make claims about whether or not certain foreign adversaries have started to gain digital footholds on critical infrastructure here in the United States. And linguistically, you'll get people saying, oh, these are attacks on US cyber infrastructure. Well, um, I'm not sure that I'd say that they are, right? And some people may just blow their top hearing that I say that, but you know what's going on is something that happens the world over, which is that you have a cyber actor that gains access to a network and tries to establish persistence on that network so that they can regain access or maintain that access at a time and place of their choosing, anytime they want, go back and touch that network. Lots of governments do that. Is that war? I'm not sure that it is. But again, our Western philosophic mind is hemmed in by these concepts, war versus peace. And so as I try to talk to folks about this, what I try to tell them is you have to think of this as existing on a continuum, right? And when you use these words about war, uh, I try and be very specific, right? Like who was killed? What pieces of equipment were destroyed? You know, what, what are, uh, what's, what's the operational impact? And what I think would be borne out is that we see that all over the world, what's happening is governments or non-governmental organizations seek purchase over what I'd call digital topographical high ground, right? Now that doesn't mean they're shooting. It just means that at a time and place of their choosing, they wish, you know, and this is contested obviously, but they wish to maintain the opportunity to take certain types of actions. I would imagine, though I can neither confirm nor deny, that's not the Glomar response, but I just mean like, you know, one could imagine the US government might be doing that as well. One could imagine, I don't know. Right. Um, but this is just the sort of nature of things. In fact, some people might call that intelligence collection operations, right? Right. And so we just have to be very clear about how we talk about these things. Why? Because it means that as we think about what are we going to do as a society, as a government, private sector, as executives, like what are you actually trying to prevent? Thinking very carefully about that, abstracting it away from this language, and these linguistic architectures, it's very critical because it's like, okay, I want the ability to understand and, you know, to continuously monitor my infrastructure and understand when something bad, when someone is trying to gain access to it or if they have access to it, right? And understanding where that exists on this continuum. Uh, and so I, I just think that, you know, the language that we use leads to the conclusions that we jump to. And sometimes those things aren't exactly like a reflection of reality. Every war thinks that the next war will look like it, but it looks different, right? World War I looked different from World War II. Cold War looked different from um, World War II. Uh, we have proxy wars. We're now effectively in a proxy war with the Russians. Um, is an era of cyber suggest that the conflict itself just looks different? that cyber means may not necessarily be used to black cities out, right? Or, or it, it just will look different. And yes, I mean, we're quantum fold better than our adversaries, right? I mean, so the notion that the Chinese are stealing stuff shouldn't suggest to people that we're not very good at stealing Chinese stuff. 
uh, right? Or couldn't turn the lights off in Russia, for example, right? I mean, I wouldn't put it past us to be the supreme cyber power on the planet by an order of magnitude. Um, is it is it potentially that conflict looks different? And I have just one sort of more mechanical follow-up question, which I have to ask you, which was an issue that did come up both at Black Hat and at, and at DEF CON about the administration and its three jobs, new jobs and how it balances them. But I'm sort of curious whether the nature of the struggle at a great power level is a little bit different in a thermonuclear age. Yeah, I, I would describe this conflict between us and the other premier cyber powers. And, you know, I would, I would put us at parity, close to parity um, with the Chinese, the Russians, and then, you know, ahead of the Iranians and the North Koreans. Um, I would describe this as a struggle over that digital topography, right? Because at the moment at which things actually go uh, hot, right? Once they cross that threshold of the use of armed force, I think that you'll see a bunch of dominoes fall, right? Like people have been saving cards in their hands to use a, a you know, card playing analogy. Right. They will have been saving cards in their hand for years, right? And at a time and place of their choosing, when things actually do tick over, they'll just play all of them or they'll play a bunch of them. Right. Uh, we did see a bunch of this activity in and around Europe, um, though I have no inside information. I, I do believe a bunch of this stuff um, was being done by the Russians on various aspects of European supply chains, both energy and otherwise. There's a lot of questionable cyber activity around European ports in the spring of, uh, uh, in the spring, uh, right around the time of the kickoff of the, uh, the activity in Ukraine. And, you know, we've seen that elsewhere where there's inexplicable activity. And remember, it's a continuum. And so why would you do that? Because you're looking, you know, a foreign power, in this case, possibly the Russians, was looking to introduce friction in the systems that control the decision-making apparatus of European governments, right? So you want to create economic friction. You want to create logistical friction. You want to do this. You want to do that. Right. And so that's how I think this stuff will play out. Um, I'm sure at some point in the next 10 years, we'll see some whiz-bang cyber activity. You could look at the, um, I forget what they're called in, uh, in Persian, but Angry Birds. Right. You know, these folks literally hacked uh, an Iranian steel mill. I think it sounds like there's some Iranian dissident group, who knows? But it sounds like they hacked and effectively destroyed multiple Iranian steel mills about a month, month and a half ago. And right. so, um, you know, sort of a shots fired moment where like, man, those folks probably caused tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage to critical industry in, in a country. So I, I think we'll see more of that. But um, I, 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 I do believe that a lot of this stuff is going to be slow, methodical and, and quiet. Right? Like we won't exactly see it until there is a moment, a definitive moment um, where they play those cards. And this is why I think systems are so important. You have to be constantly encouraging as a, as a policymaker, the companies and entities within your borders to continue to raise the bar around how they secure their systems and networks. Um, but then from a policy perspective, understand that that's the game you're playing. 
and enable that on your own side, uh, as opposed to thinking that like every time, you know, you install some espionage tool on a, on a foreign system that it's, you know, if discovered, it'll be an act of war. I just disagree with that. In some cases it might be, but in most cases, probably not. Again, that's just one man's opinion. In Um, terms of the, in terms of the multiple jobs, um, you know, like I said, when we re-architected the way in which the U.S. government authorizes and executes cyber operations, I took, as the principal architect of that effort, I took as inspiration the Prussian leadership concept of Auftragstaktik, mission-type orders. And this is uh, from Prussian general staff model, where a task would be given, a single person would be put in charge. And from my experience, the best systems work that way. I have no insight into what's happening in the White House right now. That's, you know, technically it's just a part of my past. I did it, it was great. But I found that things work most efficient when there was one person responsible and people answered to them. And if that person failed, they could, get, they could be fired. And so um, in many cases, I saw previous administrations and I won't call out names, but they created multiple centers where people had overlapping responsibility. And as I came into that job in early 2017 um, and talked to people that had served in those types of apparatuses, I personally came to the conclusion they were completely ineffective. Again, that could just be my own perception, could be my bias. Um, I hope that the multi uh, center of gravity system that uh, the new administration has set up. I hope it's effective. I, I deeply hope that it's effective. Um, I'm concerned that it might not be. And to me, the solution there is you put one person in charge, hold them accountable. And that was the Cyber uh, Solarium Commission's uh, recommendation, right? Have a national cyber director, one throat to choke. Uh, I mean, but that correct- was that was that was my position. I was the senior director for cyber on the National Security Council. We tried to explain this to the Solarium Commission, and uh, for whatever reason, they, I think when they thought one throat to choke, they meant someone they could pull up to the hill, Um, which when you're working inside the executive office of the president is often not possible because, you know, of the various privacies that are afforded to the president of the United States. A lot of complexities, and uh, and uh, one of the other things the Solarium Commission uh, recommended was uh, streamlining authorities up on Capitol Hill. Uh, now that cyber is strewn across virtually every uh, you know committee, and ultimately none of the committee chair uh, chairs uh, wanted that uh, kind of uh, consolidation. Uh, Josh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, pleasure having you on the program. Would love to have you back on, uh, as uh, there is uh, no shortage of uh, interesting things uh, to be discussing in our universe. Thanks very very much again. Thanks, Fago. Anytime. This was fantastic.